Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of On the Pod, my lord. Um, today I'm joined, as usual, by Ellie Sanford. And for this time, Adam Clark. Hello and welcome, guys. Hello, hello. Thank you very much. Good evening. Glad to be here. No problem, no problem. And uh, following uh, the, uh, I was going to say loss then, uh, the draw against Newcastle. Loss just seems such a common word to say. <laughs> I think we all know that. But following the uh, draw in Newcastle, I think Villa's season is pretty much done and dusted there so uh, we thought why not have a season review the result against Arsenal doesn't matter so yeah guys uh, you, you can you wrap up the season in a sentence? I mean to be honest we could have done the season review weeks ago because it's been done for a long time but <sighs> of course just, yeah just, there's, there's so much misery. about the uh... I think I think a nil-nil draw against a Newcastle side that won the worst in the league at home and being happy about that pretty much sums it all up <laughs> oh, it was excellent though but yeah uh, Villa's season there are no words to describe I don't think any of us expected this especially uh, pre-season when we were making our predictions um, I honestly uh, this wasn't on the card to me I said it as a joke yeah we could get relegated or get into the you know the Europa League but <laughs> I didn't expect us to actually tank and finish bottom with barely double digits of putting points. No, I thought we'd I thought we turned it round just in time. Um, you know, I thought we finally got some decent investment in over the summer. Finally adopted a strategy that would actually work. And no, complete opposite. Just everything flopped. What was the first point where you saw us getting relegated? Um, gotta be honest, the Man U game that sealed it because I like to think of myself as a bit of an optimist. So like every game, it'd be like maybe this is the one, maybe we'll finally turn it around, something will click, and it just never happened. I'm just glad it's done. Yeah, I feel that right, right to right to the end, and it was a I don't know if it was a release or not, but yeah, Adam, what about yourself? Uh, I, I certainly felt it in October when Remy Gard joined. I didn't see us actually mention. I didn't see any, any optimism, really. Yeah, I think three or four games into the Remy Guard era, when it just, I shouldn't, shouldn't really call it an era, temporary interlude, um, you know, when it just looked like the players were not playing for him. And you just thought, nah, these guys don't have it in them. I mean, I thought Remy Guard was the guy to turn it around, but I think maybe the Bournemouth game, not Bournemouth, um, Wickham, sorry, the FA Cup game was the one where maybe I thought he wasn't going to be the guy, the saviour. Yeah, that was, that was uh, an awful experience watching that on a uh, BT Sport. Um, you know, the fans who went down there certainly made their their opinions known in more ways than one. Um, but yeah, I'm with you there. That was a uh, kind of the best game to sum up his uh, short stint in charge. But yeah, uh, Adam, where do you think we were going to end up this season? Then going back to starting off. Under Tim Sherwood, loads of new signings. Uh, there's a sense of optimism. Yeah, so my pre-season prediction went back and had a look at it. Uh, I had us to finish 13th. And, yeah, to me that seemed that seemed fine. I thought, you know, we looked better than the promoted sides. You know, I thought we were better than the two northeastern sides. Um, figured we were kind of up there with the Stokes, with the Leicesters, uh, of course. You know, in terms uh, yeah. of what we'd done over the summer. The worst thing is that on paper we should be. Like we don't have a bad side, it just hasn't clicked because everything is awful essentially. Yeah, uh 
I, as I said, I've got no words. I can't pin my finger on the problem because it does seem to be such a mental thing. It seems to be within the minds of these players because they are all certainly players who should be playing for the Premier League champions right now, uh, Leicester City. They could all, you know, on their day, they should be able to walk into that team, which uh, says a lot about their talents, but also about the state that Aston Villa into, you know, bring everyone playing for the club down to that level. You know, bottom. It's a complete, the complete mirror opposite of uh, Leicester City. More yeah, more I feel that. Um, I think. Well, I mean, if you want to put, obviously, if you want to put a finger on where it went wrong, you know, it went wrong at the end of the Martin O'Neill, at the end of Martin O'Neill's period in charge. That's the root of the problem, uh, and I think we've all known that for a while. But I think if you want to see it, why why we couldn't save the season, I think we have to look, uh, you know, off the pitch. We have to look at what was happening uh, on the management side, and uh, amongst the executives as well. Yeah, I just can't see. It's This might be a really simple way of looking at it, but I just can't see things at Villa being that bad for players to be affected by it. Like, what what is going... Are people walking around, you know, criticising these players to their face, like, hanging up horrible propaganda in the dressing room? Like, what... You know, it doesn't seem like a bad place to work considering the owner doesn't show up. So, you know, no one's there to tell you off or criticise you, you know... Every, everything should be good. You're getting paid well. You, you know, it's a nice place. Birmingham's not a bad city. You know, living. It's got loads of recreational stuff to do. You can get out and about. You know, it's in the middle. You can go to London. You can get the airport. Go straight to New York, by the way. <laughs> you know, it doesn't seem like a, a horrific place to live and work <laughs> and do your thing. So, what what could be going on? Yeah, but, I mean, you say it's potentially a good thing not having a boss around, but... Without order creates anarchy. Is that not what we've seen both on the pitch and off the pitch? Maybe we needed somebody there to put in like a hard line, tell people how it should be done. Yeah, I think there was a there was a last desperate gamble, which was I think you talked about it in your article on the site, James, um, the money ball gamble. And it was pretty clear how far that had gone wrong in the negotiations that we've now seen over Adama Traore's contract, where it turns out that instead of getting what we thought was, you know, an, an undervalued kind of player who was coming from Barcelona, it turns out we've overpaid desperately. You know, we haven't written in the right kind of contract for him so that his money's going to go up in the championship and we didn't play him during the season. And there's some suggestion that that was because he had a clause in his contract that we would have had to pay him more. Like, I think that just proves, you know, we're taking this money ball approach and yet, at the same time, everything we did just was the complete opposite. Yeah, I mean, uh, Robert and Jack, obviously, a lot more experts on money ball than I am because it has its origins in uh, baseball. It's a very simple concept. Um, you pay players to get on base so they can score. It's static in baseball. Whilst football is more fluid, um, Villa didn't buy or exploit market inefficiencies they actually panicked and uh, shot for players who their rivals wanted in the case of uh, Jordan Veritu it would be Leicester City and in the case of uh, Traore it was Stoke and these aren't players you know that Villa necessarily needed um, if they looked and dug deep into the league there is certainly value to be found as we've seen with Deli Alley with Benny Kofobe. you know there's players down there that can do a job at any Ashley level Ashley Westwood was one yeah certainly yeah, exactly. I don't. Ashley Westwood fits that money ball signing. He, you know, he's a low value player. He can 
you know, certainly have the positive statistics you'd look at, you know, in terms of signing a midfielder. I think it's worth pointing out that with Moneyball, uh, a lot of people get hung up on the stats aspect and on the money aspect. Uh, but it's important to note that the original Moneyball as well, it was a change of tactics in baseball. It was the understanding that certain tactics in baseball were overvalued uh, and certain tactics in baseball were undervalued. I think we can see that with Leicester. Leicester have been the kind of the combination of that kind of approach because not only were they good in the player market, they also identified that their kind of extreme counter-attacking play that was undervalued in the Premier League. And you could uh, develop Villa developed any tactical coherent approach this season uh you know i don't think you could say i don't think any of us at this point could sit down and name what villa's best 11 is and how they should play no even uh villa's managers can't decide on what the best 11 is because we see a con- almost constant rotation of players and there are a few that stay such as uh gana guzan but the others you know it, it's you know, the hot seat, it's constant change. Whether Mike Richards is that centre-back or right-back, people can't, you know, make up a mind on a good team. And I think the best part of that, the whole, you know, put my hands in here, the air, quotation about Moneyball here, is the fact that Villa didn't go cheap on anyone. They bought them for the bang average value that they were, you know, priced at. You know, they bought the average price of a Premier League football is around seven to eight million, but Villa were spending nine to tens of millions and you know that average they weren't going below that so they just bought as expected and uh tom fox actually said it was money bought to not just one person stan collingwell who i wouldn't take his word at all but a number of people who i trust and respect um so to say that just seems seems was he simply reading Moneyball by uh, michael lewis watching brad pitt on tv and going this is a great idea and just simply going hang on we should get these players and look at some statistics and get people in and not actually comprehending the full meaning of this it's a revolution but you can't simply copy and paste that you need to think of your own way of taking it on um just to give you a quick under 21s update arsenal just took the lead well that's done then isn't it i think yeah uh that's a that's a real shame if uh, for those who don't know Arsenal have taken advantage of the ruling in the under-21 and reserves league that allows you to bring three senior players over 21s in. Um, but these aren't just any senior players. They're players you'd expect to be and feature in every single Arsenal match going forward. Uh, Joel Campbell, uh, Santi Cazorla and Francis Coquelin. Um, Coquelin, I don't even know how to say that. Sorry, <laughs> don't follow Arsenal at all. But um, <laughs> yeah, uh, there's a lot of uh, frustration about the fact that I've done that. Even though it is fair... But it just seems that they've just went the whole hog to win this um, and just not give not the chances it, to, the, yeah, to the youth who got there, such as a former Villa trainee, Dan Crowley, who featured in all of Arsenal's under-21 games, now misses out because of that. Yeah, should put out this is, so, yeah. this is the uh, playoff for promotion to the top yeah, yeah, the under-21s. This is the big game. This is the biggest game in the Aston Villa's relative league. So if they fail, it would be certainly upsetting considering that um, it doesn't seem like a fair game at all. Um, Aston Villa are handicapped in this so if they do come back it will be you know extremely good news for the future of Aston Villa that they can beat practically Arsenal's you know second stringers when these are what, what is Aston weird I mean, doesn't even match them. we talk about Adama not being ready for the first team but he's not featuring in the under 21s either and surely that would be a good chance yeah. for him to gel and mould but there's nothing I bizarre I really think uh, Adam will be a lot more uh, knowledgeable about 
how Damatriore can develop, but it does seem worrying that he can't get a game at all. Yeah, I mean, to me at this point, that seems to hint of a certain, some kind of backroom, you know, uh, changing room politics going on at the moment around Adama Traore. And uh, unfortunately, I feel like that's something that's affected uh, his entire season at the club so far. Yeah, um, it recently came out, this is pretty much the uh, pinnacle of Aston Villa's season, that he was criticising Villa on an official Facebook page, which suddenly turned out not to be his. But to be completely honest, this was uh, seemingly verified beforehand. And all of a sudden it was a, a fake one. Um, so I'm not sure what to make of that because this fan page or his page had been going for years before he was even a known quantity. So I'm not completely That's sure what's going on Yeah, with that. Um, but yeah, it, even if it hints at his contract where he'll get paid more for the games he features in, it does seem that Villa would look to move Adama Traore on which just damns this season really because he was one of the people brought in you know to feature in the team and take it to the next level and that's not happened and uh, worst case scenario is he'll go to someone like Stoke or Leicester and perform admirably Mm. I mean the saving grace is we've still got time with him because I feel like Barcelona won't want him back and I don't think he showed enough this season to warrant transfer to another premiership team so oh yeah of course i'm not writing him off yet but doesn't look as shiny as it did when he was unveiled against united back in august does it yeah it's kind of like the lebel kozak thing when uh, we was all waiting for him to co- come back only to realize that he wasn't really good and i mean i think we all knew that though we all suspected he wasn't pulling out straws yeah and he seems like a top bloke as well, so it was nice to see him come back. Yeah, but he's been the most unlucky player in recent Villa time, I guess. Yeah, it's a sad uh, statement of our season, really, isn't it? Hoping for someone who <laughs> really isn't a great footballer in the first place and who has suffered multiple kind of <laughs> yeah. terrible injuries. I was on holiday. I was on holidays at the time he made his return, and I was so excited when the lineup came out. I was like jumping. Yeah, he was he actually came off the bench and did fuck all. Yeah, I mean, like, say good, better than Villa's, you know, average competence. Yeah, but um, as it grew on, there was nothing there. He lacks the pace or uh, instinct to even get in a position to score. But yeah, uh, moving on. Worst moment of the season for you both? Uh, let's start off with Adam. Um, I think it's going to have to be um, the collapse at Leicester early on in the season. Uh you know, we're two nil. To, you know, we're uh, you know two goals up. There's 20 minutes to go. You know, we've finally seen what looks like the best of Grealish, what looks like the best of Carlos Hill, and you know, it just to me it showed. It was that that moment when Sherwood made the substitutions that left us, that left us open. That you just thought, oh man, this is not, not what we hoped for. Yeah. Um off the back of that I feel like it really did ruin the uh, illusion of uh, Carlos Hill of uh, Tim Sherwood of this whole you know product that we'd been sold as uh, Aston Villa customers as some might like to say but yeah this whole illusion that we was onto something when really it just cut it, it took one moment to capsize and that was Nathan Dyer's goal which Brad Guzan really really should have been saving mm-hmm. but that's cool, beside but... the point uh, the goal shouldn't have been created in the first uh, instance and Villa failed to adapt and 
Uh, you were the expert on this in terms of our site, Adam, but that was a, a tactical, complete tactical failure, if I'm a... Yeah, I mean, that was the one where I think he pulled off Carlos Sanchez, uh, threw on, we suddenly switched to a 4-3-3 at the end of that match with three attackers up front, and uh, Ranieri just put Mares in the middle of the field, and, uh, you know, he obviously just ripped us apart. You know, kind of that famous image of uh, (laughs) three of our players going to the ground in front of him. And, yeah, I think from that point on, you know, the Sherwood... The Sherwood trick had been uh, revealed. Yeah, and it's a, it's a shame because he's not someone who I'd look at and go, you are a bad manager. There is definitely a foundation there for someone for him to really press on and grow his intelligence in terms of uh, running football clubs. Because he's certainly a likeable character in the dressing room. We only have to go to that same match and see Jack really sprint over to him, hugging him. You know, he's someone who certainly can seem to develop footballers. He's just not, he's not all there. Which is a shame. He shouldn't have been given the job at Villa or Tottenham in the first place. Yeah, um, he should have really. Tacked, I think you yeah. can't underestimate. You can't underestimate the fact that he motivates players. Absolutely not. But at the moment, yeah, he's just arrogant. I think is basically the problem. You know, he thinks he's at a tactical level that he's just clearly not at, yeah. and he decides to make experiments to prove what he can do, and uh, you know that's what causes has caused us kind of horrific horrific problems this season. I think, you know, if he gets a good coach, you can just take over the tactical side, you know, and he can concentrate on the man motivation. You know, perhaps there's something there, but definitely not in the Premier League for a long time. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, what strikes me to come off the back of that as well is Tim Sherwood and Jamie Redknapp actually strike me as two very similar people uh, in terms of their personality and how they carry themselves. And they actually both joined together to make a magazine for the elite or footballers back uh, when they retired in about 2006, 2005. And they you know, was advertising products that the average uh, bloke couldn't afford. You know, massive mansions were in it. Interviews with you know, people who were success, life hackers, all these uh, motivational speakers. And as you can expect, this magazine bombed because A, it cost 14 quid for an issue. Oh. And B, it was only marketed at footballers. So you can see the background these two men have and how they apply themselves you know to places like Tottenham or Aston Villa and that arrogance it's a complete lack of uh, understanding you know in basic basic situations where situational awareness can help you I mean any any person saw you know any Villa fan with an ounce of uh, intelligence saw where the Leicester match was going after they scored they pulled one back um Tim Sherwood tried to go for more. He, you know, he stuck on Jordan Ayew, taking off our defensive midfielders. And he just think, season in. If Arsene Wenger was in charge, Jordan Ayew wouldn't have come on for Carlos Sanchez at all. You'd sit back, you'd defend the 2-0, you'd take the three points. The fans would maybe criticise you for being boring, but maybe we'd be a boring team in the Premier League. But yeah... Um, I think put you in charge, Ellis, and uh, we wouldn't have done that, let alone our Wenger, mate. Absolutely uh, not. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, there's no underestimation that the job of a football manager is terribly difficult because not only do you have millions of people on your back, such as me, Ellis, <laughs> and Adam, mm-hmm. who can, you know, someone who can actually tactically criticise you and be right most of the time. Um, you've also got the media to face up, and uh, Tim Sherwood actually didn't have that. They were quite pally with him. Uh, certain leaks and stuff hint to him being supported and actually undermining the reign of Remigard. 
which uh, that leads into my worst moment of the season, how the uh, press constantly attacked Remy Garden didn't seem to give him a fair ounce of space. Pretty fair enough. Like You seem like a really nice guy, and you could just see week in, week out, you grow less and less. Oh, week in, week out, he looked older, like more than just like a week aging. Like he aged like 20 years in three months. I feel like the yeah, pressure. Yeah, uh, the old Paul Lambert effect, I think. Taking on someone who seems like a bright young manager and actually actually ruining them uh, for the presses of the yeah. Job. And for me, it was it was the narrative. It was narrative that was being sold. Was you know you sack the good old English English manager who knows the league. You bring in this foreign manager. He doesn't know the league. You know, so oh look, of course he's not going to be able to turn it around. And they don't want to dig into the kind of things that were really causing problems at the club, which I think. Uh, you know, obviously, partly it's what's going on off the pitch with the ownership, and partly it's what's going on. I think there's a lot that we didn't we didn't hear about in terms of the backroom. I think it's pretty clear that there's been a fairly toxic backroom culture uh, amongst some of the supposed leaders in the club, and perhaps those were some of the guys who the media were getting their stories from. Yeah, um, there was definitely some kind of uh, I believe it was John Percy or a friend, a known friend of uh, Tim Sherwood's in the Telegraph, uh, leaking certain stories about Remy Gard and Paddy Riley. Um, you know, and it didn't help either of them. It actually uh, made Paddy Riley come off like a bit of an idiot, uh, not contacting those who Remy Gard actually told him to sign in in January. Villa actually stood a chance of, you know, pulling people in in January, believe it or not. But those were scuppered by the lack of a scouting team. Uh, one of them's actually studying at uni. One of them's in Australia. And uh, his complete refusal to get in contact with uh, players. So yeah, um, the whole post Tim Sherwood uh, press campaign, I'll call it, against uh, Remy Gard and Aston Villa's ownership uh, really stuck out to me. That's something that actually hurt. Um, no one really focused on what it was like to be a fan of Aston Villa. You know, it's not exactly like living in a third world country or fighting for your life every day. But it was certainly, you know, a horrible time to go to these matches and there'd just be nothing because the press using you as a football you know to dissect what goes on behind the scenes in football and the manager clearly getting frustrated and not even given a fair chance by anyone which is to me a complete travesty but yeah uh ellis what's your worst moment of the season mate probably leicester um, i'm gonna guess i was gonna say leicester but i'll change it up and go with my second worst. Oh, fair enough thank um, you for the content <laughs> um it was actually just a couple of weeks ago watford obviously we were already relegated it was it was a nothing game but to still be 2-1 up with like 90 minutes gone and still lose that just summed up our season and even though we were already doomed it still kind of like felt like a punch to the gut you know so that was yeah, that pretty dismal the match was horrific and uh, Adam posted a piece on it about uh, the team Villa could have been and uh, it's uh, amazing to see that it was a team Villa could have been turning to the team Villa actually are in just a space of one match told the story of absolutely and, and though I don't want to circle too much back to Sherrod I do want to point out Richards Lescott uh, Justed to a certain extent these are the choices that we were told were Sherwood's choices uh, whereas Garner Gay and IU those are the ones that the much maligned transfer committee went for well, you know, the ones who have been a success have been IU and Ghana, yeah. I think, are the two standout successes uh, this season. 
Yeah, completely, completely agree there. Um, as again, the press campaign against our foreign players has been uh, completely irrational. Um, it's a, fee- a complete fear of bringing anyone who's not English or from the, you know, not English or from the British Isles into a football club and blaming them for the downfall of it. Uh, we've seen it at Arsenal. Where at one point, they had an entirely French team, and I believe that was in their uh, glory years. So, you know, the problem is never going to be with people who can't hack the Premier League. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it, managers. There is no one size solution, you know. I think uh, us just raiding the French league had echoes of Newcastle's raiding of the French league uh, for for a couple of yeah. seasons. And that policy worked for them for a little while and then it fell apart. But it doesn't fall apart because French players can't hack it in the league. It fell apart because they selected the wrong players and had the wrong tactics. Um, yeah, and then, um, again, poor ownership as well. That can't ever help. Yeah, the whole... Uh, going back to the whole Moneyball thing, it seems like Tom Fox had the uh, idea to raid Liga in. And just, just because... For no you know, common circumstance, because the players were yeah. cheap... Um, that's that's absolutely, and I think um, I think you can now you know, see that that link to the failure of our scouting. You know what appears to have been a completely dysfunctional scouting department across Europe. You know a proper you know a proper money ball approach where you're looking really looking for undervalued players would depend on upon a really great scouting team. You know a team that could look at the statistics and you know could then go and put that in the context of the league. And decide is that something that could transfer over to the UK? And I think in this case, it was simply we have we have some knowledge of the French league. We know the players are cheap. Let's just grab from from there. Yeah, and it doesn't seem like Villa did too much of their of their own scouting. Going back to that point, they seem to only buy players that other clubs were chasing. It was almost like they was reading the Express and seeing you know going to the rumours and going, oh god. Leicester are in for him. We need to get him before they do, mm-hmm. and that's you know that, that, that that's a thing that happens. Clubs do, you know, jump the gun and buy players because other clubs want them. But that 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 shouldn't be even even be a thing. They should have you know a list of players. You know, or like the alternative voting system where you have a list of four people and you tick your preference and you're happy with all of them, but you'd rather have Jordan Veratu over someone else. But. I'm just uh, flabbergasted that a Premier League league club can make these mistakes. Um, not to blame the players who br- they brought in, because they all, you know, they're on an ind- individual basis. They seem like fantastic players, but um, it was certainly the wrong decision to even go there. You won't catch me disagreeing. I'm I'm still <laughs> a little bit flabbergasted about one of our scouts apparently still being in university. Quite frankly, like yeah, if that's, that's true, that, I mean, that gives, it gives hope for me. But, um, yeah, of course, mate. But, um, it's crazy. What re- really annoys me about that is there's such a wealth of people you would want to bring, on, even on Twitter, and I'm not saying everyone on Twitter is right, but, you know, our well, own Jack Grimsley writes for scouted football, you know, he's someone who can pick apart a player, and Aston Villa don't even have someone, you know, half the calibre of someone who writes for our blog, which kind of really disturbs me, because this isn't the case for any other Premier League or Championship club, or even Warsaw in League One. I was going to do the French uh, like Liga 1 then for just League 1 because it's completely the same. It's, I've always said the French League like League 1 mm-hmm. so I don't know why I was going there. But yeah, Warsaw, even Warsaw have a scouting department and I'm not saying they're a small club but Warsaw's catchment area is tiny and you know if they've got a competent scouting department and they can pull in players and they can pull in academy graduates like Rico Henry and be you know relatively okay and on the up. Aston Villa haven't done this for 10 years 
you know, nine on nine now. It doesn't seem like they've evolved in any way in terms of player recruitment since 2006. Mm. You can't even say they're not scouting because they're relying on the youth because we're not really bringing too many players through. Now we're just uh, going in absolute circles where it seems to be this sporadic uh, insertion of youth with uh, either older players who might be past it or players who simply have no relevance playing for us in Villa. It's, it, it echoes to me the signings of Steve Sidwell and Marlon Harewood, just because. Yeah, and I think Harewood was, it was, yeah. it was this fair. season that there seemed to be some attempt to kind of move away from that, but it was too little, too late, and and the structure wasn't in there, wasn't in place to support it. Yeah, it's a, an absolute black mirror of the Martin O'Neill days when anyone and anyone would be bought anybody and anyone uh, just just because you know Marlon Harewood Steve Sidwell Nicky Shorey uh, Luke Young people were just bought because you know and at least we had the basis that Tom Fox wanted to copy Moneyball here you know his words but uh, back in those days we didn't have an excuse and luckily you know the performances there were there to hide that you know disguise that but yeah it just wasn't there this time and uh, we're going down now to uh, the championship where who knows what will happen but yeah uh, reflecting that best moment of the season for you both I'll go to Ellis on this one first um, there's not a lot of choice really is there but um, <laughs> gotta say cup match against Birmingham City just because we were shit all year and they still couldn't beat us <laughs> <laughs> of course man that's yeah and uh, you went down there. What what was the atmosphere down there like? Was it a, a real corker? Or was uh, it? It, it, it was the best atmosphere I've seen this since the Europa League day or UEFA Cup days back then. I'd compare it to like a bit less intense than the CSKA Moscow game, but it was still mm. heated and there was a lot of police there, which was quite exciting. And yeah, yeah, of course, there's a. A bit of a smashing around going before the match, but it always happens, doesn't it? Um, but yeah, Adam, your well, I mean, best uh, moment. Yeah, beating Birmingham is definitely the best of the season. Um, a second choice, going to take our only somewhat convincing win of the season, which was the 2-0 against Norwich, uh, which I think was the first time that you just looked at a match and thought, all right, you know, we've won it. We deserve to win it just about and uh, obviously it featured Gabby scoring what was probably going to be his last goal for mm. Villa yeah a very sad moment as he actually chose not to celebrate with a, a yeah. buoyant crowd yeah I mean you know own plug you know I did write I did write an entire article about you know Gabby's goal in this game what well, made me a little bit sad uh, you know felt like a little bit of a recognition from him that this was somewhat of a last hurrah and it was such a classic Gabby goal as well, you know. It was such a classic kind of run onto oh, it. Yeah, yeah. Just do it at speed, you know. If you give him time, he doesn't know yeah. what to do. But if you make him do everything at, just at high speed, he gets there just before the keeper, stabs it home, you know. And that was a good moment. And uh, I don't know. I mean, there were there were better team performances this season, uh, but they generally ended us with us, you know, throwing it away at the end, so... Do you know what soured me on that Norwich one, though? Is that, sure, we won it, and we won it quite well, but Norwich have been pretty awful of late. So it's led to me start to think, did we really win it, or did they lose it? You know what I mean? Yeah, we've 
what we have to remember is uh, Declan Rudd absolutely threw that goal to Gabby. Absolutely gifted it to him. Panicked and rushed out. He had no right to score that, and that was a. Uh, Probably one of the worst goalkeeping errors I've seen if I'd not seen uh, Brad Guzan and Wayne <laughs> Hennessy this year. Oh, <laughs> man, Guzan this and, uh, season. Brad, he has dropped some clangers, yeah. Um, what goes on to my worst moment is uh, Brad Guzan. Um, the player James, triggers we, me. I genuinely get upset moment, when, I, when I see... <laughs> you drag this down, James. Oh, my James. God, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Best moment is seeing Mark Bunningall uh, or the atmosphere against Newcastle for me. Um, absolutely buoyant, raving crowd who did not care for want or worry about the flipping results or the performances, and it was just absolutely crazy. And uh, best part for me is sitting on a hill, Newcastle fans walking past me, drunk, uh, singing, I hope you all die, I hope your team dies, I hope your club dies, and seeing that same person being posted on Twitter crying after the match on the curb. Absolutely fantastic. I mean, I'm, I'm going to try it. I'm going to try and play a little bit peacemaker here. You know, Newcastle fans have suffered a lot from their owner and, you know, and a lot of different managers over the couple of years. You know, we sh- there should be a bond there. Oh, yeah. There's a there's definitely a bond. It's just not like... Not like a good bond. It's like... It's, just a, it's, a, it's a mirror image of the same team. Um... Especially, it was hilarious when. Let's not forget, it was absolutely hilarious when they went when when they went down. Um, yeah. I laughed. Um, you know, oh, yeah, just we, because we everyone relegated them, didn't we? They played us the last. We day. did. And Damien yeah, we scored did. a forty-yard own goal. And, and it was beautiful. Entirely dumped them down. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, <laughs> incidentally, should, as Adam was saying, there should, there should it's be not a three-one football. Um, but yeah, yeah, uh, seeing them go down in the first instance was absolutely hilarious. I mean, there shouldn't have been banners about it. Maybe that was too far, but um, it was a complete circus of a club and a club that deservedly should have went down. Um, do feel sorry for the fans because it is an institution in Newcastle, uh, Newcastle United. But, you know, when you can't handle the heat, you've got to get out of the kitchen. You can't stand there and pretend you're something you're not. And uh, we haven't. We've had the luxury of a few seasons of witnessing this. So I guess we all think, you know, took it on the chin. We actually think it's kind of hilarious that we're going yeah, down. Yeah, and I'm afraid we, d- we didn't yeah. get any compassion um, from Newcastle fans this season. Uh, so, oh, you know, no. I, I don't think oh, they were... expected any on the return, you know. And I'm sure that, you know, had they beaten us, they'd have been singing about it afterwards. Yeah, there were some very sour grapes after that match. Um, Villa fans were absolutely buoyant, not even taking you know the piss out of Newcastle fans. They were just so happy that irony had presented itself in the purest form, mm-hmm. and just you know in that in that moment in Aston, you know, irony personified when there's Newcastle fans absolutely having a circus before the match, giving it you know singing much louder than the numbers would suggest. And after the match, sitting on curbs crying and uh, pushing uh, Villa fans around because I just couldn't handle the fact that Villa more than likely have sent them down again after uh, expecting waiting all season. Do you hear what um, Jack Colback has come out and said today? He blamed the beach balls on their lack of a performance, which is mm-hmm. hilarious. Traumatic memories for Rafa Benitez. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they were, they were loving Rafa Benitez before the match, by the way. Not so much now. 
yeah, Rafa can't be blamed for Newcastle's downfall. It's just a complete mismanagement of a football club. More than likely worse than what we've seen at Aston Villa as well because they're going down with a humongous wage bill. Yeah, yeah I mean, definitely. that's the one... I mean, John Joe Shelby again, just like 60 grand a week or whatever in the Champions. The one thing you can hopefully say about our relegation is that it doesn't seem like we should be carrying a catastrophic wage bill uh, down with us considering the cost-cutting measures that have happened, uh, you know, excluding Adama and his possible 60000 a week, uh, you know, to not even play in the under-21s. Uh, whereas Newcastle, they've got a lot more dragging them down uh, in terms of that money. Uh, yeah, just a bit of breaking news. Aston Villa have lost, well, they're going to lose 3-1 now. Um, Robert on uh, our 7500 Holt uh, Twitter feed at 7500 Holt so bitter about all of the senior players Arsenal played hope you enjoy that silverware you wankers <laughs> which I think pretty much agreed I mean I can't blame them for playing the players they played but a bit yeah. of sportsmanship probably would have so let's still say it. great season from our under 21s yeah. to get up to the playoffs mm. uh, but yeah this isn't a bad you know, bad thing is it? Uh, people have went in droves to support this uh, under twenty-one team, and I hope that continues. Fantastic little little thing they've uh, really put on, and it is a great sign for Villa's future if it can be capitalised on and not shipped off uh, bit by bit to teams like Preston, Sheffield Wednesday, yeah. and Leicester. Yep. Right. Especially Leicester, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, Michael Brighton on the preliminary fringe of uh, England's Euro twenty sixteen squad. Yeah, I mean, let's say con- let, I'm going to say congrats to Mark. You know, he was a mystifying, mystifying that we ever let him go. Um, but you know, at least we can say there was a little bit of Villa. I'm sure he still supports us. There is even despite how he was treated. Oh, he yeah, definitely. If uh, Ryan Bertrand clapped the players. Well, for the fans, after we applauded him for taking the corner for some reason. Uh, I'm not sure why we did that, but we uh, the Holton clapped him and he gave a little bit of appreciation back. And I'm sure Michael Bryan would have done the same because we all applauded him when he went to take a corner in the same spot. But yeah, he's absolutely played a blinder. Well done to him. Um, I'm very bitter that we've let him go because, uh, you know, it's, I said in the first edition of this podcast that you know, the class of 92 wasn't defined by their individual qualities, even though they're brilliant players, but by the fact they came together and had great chemistry and uh, carried a team to multiple successes. And we may have had that with players like Daniel Johnson, Mark O'Brien, Jordan Lydon, and the rest of the gang coming through. Yeah, other congratulations due to Matt Lowton, I believe, promoted with Burnley. Fantastic. Um, commiserations go to Ricardo Calder, who suffered an injury and was relegated with Doncaster Rovers after previously appearing for Dundee United. Um, but yeah, Villa's loan report is slightly promising with Nathan Baker playing an absolute blinder for Bristol City this year in, a, in the in the championship and he will come back to Villa with a head full of championship yeah. experience, which is just a buzzword at the end of the day. But he's played a blinder in the championship, so maybe we can expect the same from him next year. Here's hoping. I mean, and moving on to that, what... Sorry, Ellis, carry on. No, I was just going to say... Um, Personally, the uh, Matt Loughton one hurts more than the Albrighton one. I mean, I know Albrighton's a villain, like, through and through, but the scene where the problem area was for us this year, and the solution was right there, and then we just shipped him off to Burnley. Yeah, with uh, all things Aston Villa, the solution is quite literally right in, in front of their eyes, <laughs> but it's never the one taken. Um, we've seen that time and time again. And now players like Andy Vyman, uh, Daniel Johnson... 
Barry Bannon, uh, not Joe Bennett, he's coming back, but those type of players will be playing their trade at a high level in the championship next year. Or even uh, higher with um, Bannon, because Wednesday... Yeah, and Mo Byman in the yeah. playoffs, yeah. With Derby County, and uh, possibly losing out there. But yeah, um, that being said, uh, moving on, what can we expect from Villain in the championship next year? It's a difficult one to answer because, of course, um, everything depends on any ownership change in the summer. You know, we could we could literally be in almost any situation uh, next season, depending on what happens with the ownership. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh, would you say, Adam, that there is a form? There seems to be this buzzword: this formula. Is there a formula for winning the championship? Do you need championship experience? I really, I really don't think there is. I think actually, over the last couple of years, we've seen a lot of changes in championship because it used to be that a lot of people said the championship. You know, you had to go in, had to play this classic, you know, English style. You know, you had to, have to be really solid at the back. I think over the last couple yeah, of seasons, yeah. we've seen a lot of possession-based teams win the championship. Yeah. Uh, uh, Karanka and uh, Chris Houghton certainly, uh, their teams have exemplified some uh, classy football in the lower the division of uh, English football this season. Not sure, not sure about Sean Dyche's Burnley. They seem a bit more direct. Yeah, but Bournemouth ran away with the championship the season that they came up. Um, you know, yeah. they played, uh, you know, an extremely kind of possession-based, ticky-tacker style, if you want to use that phrase. Um, so no, I'm not. I'm not sure at all that there is. You know that there is a. I think being having a solid defence. Um, you know, being hard to beat at home is probably your biggest thing, uh, because it's such such a long, long season. That if you know that when you come, when you play at home, you know you're going to be three points or a draw at worst. Then it's just about how many points you can nick away. Yeah, uh, Ellis, will you be heading down to any games in the Championship? What do you expect from uh, Villa next year, next season even? Uh, I mean, I'm definitely hoping to attend as many games as I can. Um, I mean, Cardiff game in particular, for personal reasons, that's what I'm looking forward to. But I think in terms of how well we do, I think our biggest problem but could be an advantage is that we are going to be the unknown quantity in the league, aren't we? No one knows what's going to be like no one knows what to expect from Villa next year because Villa probably don't know what to expect from Villa next year. So it's gonna be of a busy course, summer um, and it'll easily define our season, I reckon. I have no idea whether we'll finish. Uh, presumably not relegated. <laughs> so yeah, let's try let's try and bash this double relegation thing on the head, right? Which is that you got I think, you know, there have been an awful lot of people saying, Oh, you know, much more likely that they'll go down again than that they'll come up. You know, oh, I think they're going to go down. They're going to be favourites for relegation next season. I think that's just—it's just ridiculous, right? It's just. Well, it is bollocks, yeah. You know, the clubs that the clubs that people were comparing us to. You know, I think we're talking about the Leeds, the Portsmouths. You know, these are sides that had huge financial worries dragging them down. You know, when they yeah. went, you know, there were problems that were much, much deeper seated. And I'm not going to deny that there are deep-seated problems at Villa, but they're deep-seated problems that can pretty much be removed when you just remove and, uh, Randy Lerner from the side. Of course, uh, in the case of Leeds, pissing money up the wall, and in the case of uh, Portsmouth, being likely used for some dodgy financial activity behind the scenes. But with Villa, there's no... You know, Randy Lerner, credit be to him in this, they used to convert a lot of debt in Villa to equity. So they won't be left with some uh, heavy uh, bills once he leaves. 
but it would take a certain, you know, a complete financial nosedive for Villa to be relegated next season. Um, you know, it's certainly a possibility in future if the team doesn't kick on instead and stagnates and degrades, as we've seen with the Premier League. But I can't see that happening. It's a, um, of course anything's a possibility, but definitely um, I don't think relegations on the cards for next season. What about Wigan? They double relegated, and I thought they were not as badly financially run. I think they were just kind of shit. Though, <laughs> really. <laughs> to be blunt. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's a worrying example, but Wigan, you know, we're not talking about a traditional powerhouse of football. You know, they did very well to get off to the Premier League. Um, but, you know, I think them going down is not necessarily surprising. You know, we are just talking about a different calibre of club when it comes to Villa. You know, and I know yeah, and of you Wigan, Wigan fans can jump, you know, if any are listening, can jump on me all they like. You know, they can say we go down. Absolutely. We went down. We deserve to go down. But when you're just talking about institutional strength and the ability to bounce back, you know, we're just talking about a totally different degree. Yeah, I mean, in terms of, you know, football in the north, um, you've certainly got Liverpool, uh, Bolton, even, you know, Manchester United, Man City. In, in the surrounding area I mean Wigan's um, a rugby Wigan. town I guess yeah exactly same with uh, Warrington that you know it just doesn't compare to what Villa and even Birmingham City stand up to and mean to this city uh, and that's no you know down on them that's nothing bad against you know their, that's no black mark against their football club but they really had to change their entire identity and footballing image whilst they was falling down the clay uh, you know the face of a cliff um, no teams seem to bounce back after a Martinez spell, um, especially Wigan, who were, you know needed the complete redesign after uh, he went and joined Everton, and now he will be gone again. Pray, praying he doesn't come to Aston Villa. Mm-hmm. Um, not that he's a bad bad manager, but seem, teams don't seem to kick on under him at all. He'd be better than Nigel Pearson. Yeah, in my opinion. Well, well, yeah. Should we talk about Nigel Pearson? So he is the front man for the Villa job. Um, how do we feel? I've come around to him. They were completely bang honest. Um, I've really come around to him. Um, I don't think it. It's he's one of the managers who doesn't fit in. He's a Remy guard in that sense. You know, he will always be criticised for his actions, and some of his actions are you know completely fucking stupid. But. You know, when have we, you know, I can't say I've strangled someone on a football pitch, but we've all had moments of complete stupidity. Um, and because of his status, because he's a football manager and because he says stupid things and he doesn't get on with journalists who, you know, you know, admittedly have, you know, poked the bear and tried to bring that out of him. Um, I think he, you know, he's a bit of a, a brute, a bit of an oaf. But I don't think the whole story is there because Leicester's owners and the backroom staff at Leicester have a lot of praise to say about him in building this team, a, a complete togetherness that was built by him. And Ellis? Um, Still hate him. Ellis, you don't seem to agree? No, I just don't like the guy. I mean, he probably is a good manager, but... He was 20th in the league with Leicester for a long time. And just why? Like Claudio, Claudio Ranieri didn't make wholesale changes. Just one or two big changes. And, I mean, if the basis was already there and Pearson couldn't do that much with it, it says quite a lot about him. And I don't mm. like his demeanour. And I think there's better managers yeah. out there, quite frankly. 
It's just whether or not they'd want to come to Villa, which is possibly the I mean, issue. When I say when I say that I've come around to me, it's not like I welcome him with open arms. It means I've went from point blank refusal to just accepting that it may happen. No, I'm still in point blank refusal. I'm, <laughs> I'm not allowing myself fair, to consider it. Fair enough. But uh, what do you think, Adam? I think you're probably one of the, you know, the most one of the most well versed people to speak about in a manager managerial appointments considering you know your tactical analysis yeah and stuff. i mean i'm gonna risk appearing a bit kind of a bit wankish about it what my worry about is to the extent to which he fits with those kind of tentative movements that we saw towards a moneyball approach so i was probably one of the very few people that was quite happy to see that paddy riley uh has remained at the club for now uh, I know people were calling yeah. for his head as part of this backroom staff that's led to the failure. Um, now I don't know. I don't know how. I don't know how well Paddy Riley did his job. All I know is that when we come back up, we don't want to be a yo-yo club. We don't want to be a club that's looking, you know, just to try and scrape out 17th every single season in a Sam Allardyce-like manner. And when you look at the sides that haven't done that, you look particularly, I think, uh, Southampton, probably, you know, a great example. Swansea are another great example in the last couple of seasons. Uh, Clubs who've come up and established themselves. They have adopted this kind of analytics-driven approach. Uh, They've installed a culture in the club that is bigger than the manager. And that's my worry, is that is Nigel Person a guy who can't accept uh, being really... I'm not going to say cog in the machine, but Southampton kind of instituted this thing where they had a culture at the club where they even looked at the managerial targets and they said who would fit in with the culture of our club. So they made the culture of the club something bigger than the manager. I'm worried about how Pearson would work within that kind of system. Well, he uh, seemed to fit in quite well at Leicester where there was definitely uh, people... You know, making moves above him. So Steve Walsh and uh, his backroom staff seemed to have a lot more say than he did in terms of how the club were, you know, was run behind the scenes. He just seemed to plan the team out and uh, get, you know, motivate them, which is like, almost the anti-Sherwood. He's an English manager, and relatively young English manager who's grown into the game, who uh, is able to A, motivate teams and B, plan for matches, which is something Villa, you know, sorely miss. We haven't seem to have anyone competent in you know, planning for games and motivating the team since Gerard Julio. Yeah, I know. Even Martin. I, know. I see similarity. Um, there you go. Well, I'll just say, I know there's not a lot of hunger in the fan base right now for someone to be above the manager, uh, considering what we've seen with Tom Fox, you know, considering what we've seen, uh, you know, with some of the other guys, Henrik Almstadt as well. Um, but I think it is, you know, in the modern league where you're facing this kind of ridiculously fierce financial competition, You've got to have that edge now. Yeah, the manager needs as much help as he can get, and the club needs as much stability as it can afford. Um, a man, a gentleman in charge who can uh, make all the right moves in terms of backroom staff appointments and you know player player performance and player recruitment can only help the club. Um, certainly, Paddy Riley doesn't seem to be that man. He just he's just the head of player recruitment, and we we are unaware of the role he has played. But if there is a future in you know stats and analysis-based recruitment of players, I would certainly want him to stick around. I just hope that you know all these rumours of uh, you know the backroom shenanigans that he seems to have had a part in aren't true, and it's just paper hearsay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and sorry, Ellis. But what were you with saying? Aston Villa, 
Um, I was going to disagree with James, which is quite a shocker, oh, about um, uh, Pearson. I feel like he's a little bit, like you said, he's not like Sherwood, but in terms of ego, I think there's quite a lot of similarity. He definitely thinks highly of himself, which could be seen as a good thing in terms of confidence, but also it's quite arrogant. Also, he strikes me as the type of manager that um, divides opinion, and that could affect the dressing room. Like, Tim Sherwood had his mates at the change rooms. What's to say that Pearson perhaps wouldn't have the same problem? Which concerns me because we need harmony because we've seen what disharmony does to a team, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I mean, if uh, Pearson does lose the dressing room, he doesn't have the backing of the media because he's already made them his enemy. Um, with his uh, antics at Leicester, <laughs> he did not get on well with anyone. Um, they seem to have warmed to him now because of Aston Villa's failure, failure with a foreign manager. Um, they seem to be warming to any idea that an English manager would be the saviour of a footballing institution. But yeah, um, I, I'm not. It's not like I'm keen on him, but I don't. I simply don't see another option right now, what? especially if the board are convinced that they want an English manager. I mean, what about Brendan Rodgers? I mean, he's British, not English, but. Um, yes. Everyone thought he was going to Swansea, but today Swansea announced that they're looking into extending the contract of the Italian chap whose name I cannot remember. <laughs> Which puts Brendan Rodgers back out on the market. If he wants yeah, back in, so. there's worse places for him to go, I'd like to think. Yeah, I believe it depends on what happens at Everton, but uh, Manuel Pellegrini was uh, certainly touted for that role. Uh, following uh, Pep Guardiola's appointment as a Man City manager, who will hopefully be playing Europa League football next year. Mm. How ironic that uh, that is the case of him choosing the blue side of Manchester over because of their potential footballing future, when it may not actually be as stable as it first seemed. Yeah, I liked but, I yeah. liked the idea of Brendan Rodgers. Um, you know, I think he he put together a very good side at Swansea. Yeah, I think he put together intermittently a very good side at Liverpool um, on the other hand if you're talking about managers I, d- I wonder really if you, if you could even avoid football managers with ego you know I know you can say that Remy Gard for example stayed very quiet uh, you know I still think I still think you don't get to that level without having quite a big ego as a manager um, to be honest it's really about the I suppose it's how you use the ego like if you can keep it in check and just use it to motivate your players but when you're coming out with ludicrous statements like Nigel Pearson and Tim Sherwood maybe that's when you step back and realise it's not all about you mate yeah um, even uh, just spoke about Roberto Martinez not completely uh, belay of ego uh, he had the bollocks to uh, say that Gareth Barry was uh, one of the world's best players uh, he's a good player he's a great player <laughs> But uh, there's some certain delusion there about his own abilities as a manager to make Gareth Barry a world beater. Um, so, random question. Would anyone take Gareth Barry back if he was offloaded from everything? No. I was just about to say that. Speaking of Gareth Barry, <laughs> would you take him back next year? In a heart. But yeah, I'm current, I was currently writing a little piece on a people Villa must pursue. And if it isn't Warsaw's Adam Chambers to bring some experience and uh, knowledge to Villa's midfield because they do need to build around youth in that midfield department. Um, If not Gareth Barry, 
Adam Chambers because Gareth Barry would not su- suffer these falls gladly. Uh, Aston Villa, um, he's certainly, from my experience watching him play, he certainly uh, left his mark on the pitch, left it all on the pitch at Aston Villa, and he hasn't done that at any other club until now at Everton. Um, he left it all on the pitch. He was absolutely shattered after 93, 94 minutes of a football match in the Martin O'Neill eras. And uh, absolutely fantastic. And uh, it's a shame that his name isn't held much higher than it is due to the tra- you know the transfer sagas surrounding him. Moving to Liverpool and Man- or Man City, he chose uh, City based on a meeting with Mark Hughes who said, you need to jump on this train as uh, soon as possible, lad. It's going big places. And it did. Um, who can blame him? He uh, issued a full apology to Villa fans for moving, but said it was the right thing for his future, and it definitely was. So I can't blame him for that, and I welcome welcome him back with more than open arms at any price. I think we we desperately need some calm, professional heads uh, in the dressing room, and you know, even if it were only on that basis, frankly. You know, I I mean, he was slow when he was with us. It was like watching him run through treacle. God knows what it would be like now. But, uh, you know, just to get, get that experience, just to get someone who can relay instructions, you know, back down to the team, he'd be pretty useful. Yeah, And he'd be a good player to work with the kids too. I mean, he came through the youth yeah. system so, and he knows the club. Don't see any reason yeah. why we wouldn't want him back, quite frankly. I mean, I don't want to spout ridiculous uh, hyperbole right now, but I would happily pay £100,000 to Gareth Bale just to make ensure the club was on some kind of stable footing going forward because, bloody hell, uh, having Gareth Barry back right now would seem like an absolute miracle. When that, you know, I don't know where, where this club is heading. Certainly not a double relegation as we uh, expect, expected, but we don't know when these so-called dark times are so over. What- what do we think the core of the side going forwards is? I mean, the standout players this season have been Idris Agana and Jordan Ayew, I think. Um, do we see any hope that either of those two stays? Oof, no. <laughs> I'm going to just straight flat out no. Uh, Jordan Ayew uh, would be a fifth for any team in the lower half of the Premier League table looking for a complete firebrand of a striker. Uh, someone who isn't afraid to stick an album in. Uh, so to speak, to uh, you know, win your football team matches, and you know, to his credit, his anger has helped as much as you know, define his season. Uh, he gets he he's greedy. He doesn't pass. You know, he ruins chances. But bloody hell, does he score some good, crucial goals? And it's a shame we couldn't provide more service to him. It's also a shame he decided to uh, try and break Aaron Cresswell in. But you know, less said about that, the better. His aggression might work against him in terms of finding a new club. Or at least that's what I'm. Oh yeah, he's got he's got temperament problems. I would say, you know, he was a good poacher. What he was also good at, which I think went unnoticed, is just how good of a wide forward he was. You know, he was a very he was brilliant this season at kind of getting into wide areas, tricking his way past players, putting balls in the box. It's just the same that you know he either had Rudy Justed or Gabby Ogunlahor, you know, in the box waiting for him. Yeah, uh, it is a shame. I still think the main problem this season will always be Villa's midfield because it doesn't seem to be either here or there. Um, It can't get back to support the defence and it can't get forward to support the attack. It just seems to hope that those two sections of Villa's players can do their own thing. 
And uh, I hope you agree. <laughs> I hope you guys agree with me. I'm not just uh, completely talking out my ass here. But uh, I really think Villa's midfield of all departments of their uh, squad really has not pulled their weight this year. I'm afraid with I'm... With the exception of... Uh, uh, one. Go on, Adam. You're going to have to disagree. It's the defence. The defence this season has been my far just the single thing where it was just impossible it was impossible even to play with the lineup. How like I mean the our midfield wasn't good, but I think Ghana Ghana yeah. was great. He'll add more assists eventually to his game. Uh Westwood disappointing this season, but he still moves the ball around well. Some of the others, yeah. you know, Grealish, Hill, we didn't really kind of see what they could do. But the defence was just a disaster the whole way through. I mean, the fullback situation, obviously we lost Jordan Amvi early on in the season, you know, it didn't help. But Ali Sissoko, Leandro Bakuna and Alan Hutton, none of them can cut it at fullback at this level. Jolien Lescott hmm, had a couple of good games, then had a couple of stinkers, plus his relationship with the fans was just toxic. Um absolutely gone out yeah. yeah I don't know Mika Richards probably the single worst player of the summer to me trying to crowbar him into the team was actually what <laughs> yeah, yeah. basically ruined our defence because between Okore and Lescott you might have made something or between Okore and Clark you might have made something but by playing half the season trying to crowbar Mika Richards in either at centre back or right back that was a disaster and then I mean Kieran Clark I know we all love the guy for his passion not sure as much as we wish it was that passion is what makes you a good defender and then Joris Gray yeah, apparently doesn't yeah, want to be here anymore totally agree. oh and I forgot about yeah uh, but, <laughs> <laughs> don't even mention it we'll go, go on to him in a minute but uh, coming on the back of that in terms of uh, underperformers this season for Villa's defence I would certainly have to point a, thing, a big finger at Mika Richards the biggest finger um, at the start of the season, he didn't actually look incredibly bad as a centre-back, but it, somewhere along the lines, it completely fell out under his feet and he could not do a thing to save his life, whether it be uh, tackling, being in position, or actually supporting you know, the midfield in a counter-attack. Mika Richards was lost at all times after about two, three games into his uh, spell as a centre-back. If we manage to sell him off to another lower half side, and I've seen plenty of articles that suggest that some lower half sides would love to have him, it will be the greatest heist of the century. It's a shame as well, because uh, Mika Richards growing up wasn't someone who I'd look at and go, oh, you are a bad football player. But whether it's just a product of what's happened this year or at this football club, he certainly seemed to have tried to take this all on his shoulders and absolutely collapse under it. As you said, Adam, he looks completely awesome when he's doing heroic things. But uh, more than likely not, those heroic things leave him face down in the turf while someone else is scoring. There might have been a bit of pressure on him because he's not played as often as somebody his age and his ability perhaps mm-hmm. might have. Given that Man City, obviously, he made, what, nine appearances in his last three years. So if yeah, he's not played much, you've probably lost a step relative to how the league's progressed. Plus, you've got a chip on your shoulder. Yeah. Do so you reckon that yeah, might have played a part? I think his development was ruined. And, uh, you know, he came, he came back. You know, he's clearly demanded that he be put in centre-back because I think he knows that his body can't, you know, keep him at right-back anymore. But he just he just doesn't have the instincts. He doesn't have the positioning. You know, perhaps, you know, give him kind of two years intensive tuition. 
perhaps he'd serve him into a serviceable centre-back, but bringing him back from Italy and expecting him to be the new foundation stone of our defence. Yeah, he should have certainly been uh, brought around into that towards now in the season rather than expected to kick from the off. Um, it's probably a reason why we uh, lunged for Julian Lescott uh, on deadline day in the summer because uh, Michael Richards, Mika Richards even, uh, you know, as I said from the get-go, as soon as those heroics failed him and there was a gap behind him, you know, it was all well and good. He would look like an England star mm-hmm. until he lost the ball halfway up the pitch. Yeah. By the way, circling back but, for worst moment of the season, him not managing to bundle that ball across the line against oh Sunderland. God. No, <laughs> you know, if it hadn't ah. been just such a hilariously improbable thing that he couldn't get it across, uh, I don't know. I still keep me awake at night. You could watch replay of that a hundred times, and I'm still convinced it's it's going <laughs> to go in somehow. <laughs> yeah, um, it's a real shame because Mika Richards is someone who I came to you know love as someone growing up and watching football in the UK watching him play for Man City in England was something you know quite incredible to see this you know young guy develop into something for Man City England I saw him score you know his first goal against Villa and just come into the press conference afterwards and just you know drop a load of (laughs) F-bombs it was fantastic seeing someone like that someone just normal and even in the Wickham match you know he was the one confronting the fans talking to them and whether it's right or wrong I want. I never stopped believing that he would have a future as Villa's captain, and that just seems to be shot now. And it is a damn shame because Mika Richards is someone I'd lo- have loved, you know, to be that centre back, to love to be that foundation. But it it wasn't ever going to happen if we were completely, compl- you know, brutally honest. It wasn't on the cards. And uh, pointing a finger at another person seems to be Joris Akore, who you know has, seems to have had a complete mental breakdown at Aston Villa in the last you know three or four months, which is a, another shame. He seems to think that he's worth a lot more than he is, and it's a shame that he's uh, refused flat out to play for Aston Villa. And you know whether Eric Black was lying in his press conference, and because Akore would later come out and deny uh, Black's claims that he'd refused to sit on the bench against Chelsea or whatnot. He was caught out and it looked bad. Um, I certainly don't want a player saying to ever play for this club, who's, whether he's likable as Yoris or not, to say, I refuse to sit on the bench. Yeah, it was mm-hmm. very disappointing. And I think it was, uh, you know, just a sign of some of these players who you sign them very young, you know, they're very hyped. I think, you know, there were rumours that Chelsea wanted him as well. And it's just a problem of kind of expectations and, you know, just showing kind of how toxic it all became. Uh, Villa in the last, you know, in the last couple of seasons, especially just in our dressing room, you know, he's had injury problems, absolutely, and it can't have been fun, you know, being on the sidelines this season. But you know, it's totally up oh, to you not. to kind of work your way up into the side. Yeah, uh, I think I, mean, I said um, it on the last podcast. I think yours, Corey's got one of these pretty outspoken agents, which would. Certainly, explain if there's an eat like somebody in his ear saying you need better than this, and then encouraging him to maybe act out because certainly he's awesome. good enough. Yep, just attitude issues. And I still hope that he could turn it around. It doesn't look likely at the minute, but 
he could he could have been, and this is the sad thing if he does go, he could have been like the rock in the center in the center back for quite a few years. So he'll be one of the biggest like ones that got away if he does if I leave. Yeah, um, it's a sh- it is a real shame, but it is someone who certainly thinks or certainly has the influence that seems they are better, simply better than they are. Yara Zakora's performances for Aston Villa this season, whether you know the statistic is that we've won a bunch more games with him than we've lost, but you know his individual performances in those games have almost resulted in clear own goals because of his own fault. Mm. Um, he's certainly good with the ball. He can certainly play a pass turn into a dangerous attack but uh, I really don't want a player with that supposed or proposed attitude to you know st- for me it seems a worse crime than Jolien Lescott because you know what Jolien Lescott seems to have absolutely bumbled around into these <laughs> for a sheer idiocy <laughs> whereas Yara's seems a tiny bit more sinister it seems to be gaming the situation power at Aston Villa yeah. yeah a complete power yeah. play and that, you know, frankly, that's not on. He's paid a, you know, a fuck ton of money, thirty, you know, thirty odd grand a week, surely, to uh, you know, more double what I'd earn in a year in a week, and he, you know, that's not good. That's clearly not good enough. You know, that's a fair play. Yeah, you want to play football, but if your manager says you're not in my plan, whether it's Terry Black, idiocy or not, if you're on the bench, you know, you're on the bench. That's. That's so, the bottom line. But to what extent do we need to be pragmatic in thinking about how we're going to rebuild this side? So there's a lot of fan anger, there's a lot of fans saying just, you know, scrap the lot of them, get rid of all of them, chuck them out. Well, we need some players next season. You can't just get rid of everyone. You know, okay, well, we'll have some people coming back from loan. Gary Gardner will come back from loan. Hopefully, we've got big hopes for him. Um, you know, Joe Bennett hopefully will come back from loan as well. Um,. But who else are we looking at as the core of a side? I mean, Ashley Westwood, presumably, you know. From... <laughs> the ones yeah. who are saying, the ones who are saying that we need that we should, well, we need to bounce straight back. Ironically, are the same ones that are saying we need to scrap a lot of them. From what I've noticed, yeah. Um, as you can't really have both. Either you get rid of most of them and have one or two seasons in the Championship rebuilding, or you keep most of them bring in a couple of people and gamble it pays off mm-hmm. so I think it's no real can't have it both ways like yeah I would I I no one is going to like it but I would almost suggest it's necessary even to keep Jolien Lescott just because there was a small stretch of games where between him and Okore we seem to have some kind of workable centre-back pairing um, you know he's got a lot of experience I know Perhaps, perhaps his relationship with the fans is just so toxic at this point that it's more trouble than it's worth. Um, I mean, he's got a year left on his contract. I mean, who's going to buy him? So I feel like maybe no. he will have to stick around just by necessity. And if that's the case, if we can, then use him. And I agree. Why not stick him in there? Uh, Julian Lescott, in from an economical point of view, certainly keep him. Um, he seems serviceable almost at a Premier League level, so that would imply that he can certainly be used in the Championship just by, you know, de facto. But from a fan perspective, as I said, it's not sinister what he's done. It's just sheer idiocy that he's bumbled into these situations. I don't believe that when he said it's a weight off his shoulders (laughs) that he truly meant, you know, oh my God, what a relief to be relegated. You know, they're just sick of the pressure. They could not perform under the pressure 
you know the pressure that they were facing and to get that R next to the name. We we all said it was a relief. Why yeah. can't you know? No, Jordan I think it's it's, it's honest stupidity. Yeah, it's complete. You know, cannot tell a lie. Uh, the phone one, the car that wasn't so much. Like you can't just say. But I don't even. <laughs> I can't believe for a second that he would think, you know, this is a great idea, which actually leads me to believe that it was actually posted by his uh, arm. No, <laughs> like, I cannot. Honestly, that, you know, there are, yeah, there's believing that he's an idiot and there's believing, you know, something's... I'm, I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure but, he posted the, posted the image. <laughs> um, you know, but whether it's just... An but I, just, I just don't understand why that would be a good idea. I don't... Because he'd left it up as well, so yeah. it's like... For, uh, like <laughs> I really want to believe that because you know I've but died people I I'm not <laughs> saying that oh my he put a Mercedes like C class you know personalized license plate on his Twitter feed and sent it out you know sinisterly but I believe there's an accident about it I just don't believe it all came about how he said it <laughs> it was probably to a DM to another player and he accidentally put it on his Twitter feed whatever but. uh yeah, he really tried to dig himself out of this, and uh, people such as Stan Collymore really gave him a licking oh, for Moore, it. Don't get me started on Collymore. Oh dear! I look, if there's if there's ever a man who has used his supposed support for a club to boost his own career more, you know, it's just he's toxic. He's toxic to the club, essentially. You know, he's yeah. In a way, to me, he's kind of the out uh, in a lot of the outward manifestation of some of the problems that we've seen with our own players this season. Yeah. Um, the reason I bring Collymore up in a season review is he has had such an impact off the pitch in terms of this season. He seems to have come out of absolutely nowhere. Mm-hmm. To you know, he was a toxic figure beforehand, but this is taking it to taking the piss, frankly. Um, at the start of the season, he was hyping about the, the, you know, the coffee and biscuits he shared with Tom Fox, uh, and a number of other people talking about Moneyball, and uh, he he was quick enough to turn his back on our yeah. Fox, who doesn't seem to have even been the problem. Aston Villa, despite his actions, uh, you know, he seems to have been fully on board with Remy I mean, Gard. is just parasitical seemed... on Villa at the moment. Yeah. yeah. That's the only way. That's Absolutely. the only way I can kind of describe it. You know, it's just someone who's just sucking yeah. blood out of the club. You know, getting fat and, while uh, doing so. Yeah, t- what really, really hurts, really actually makes me quite angry, is the fact that Aston Villa is set to cut five hundred jobs, and all Stan Collymore can do is argue with uh, Gabby Bunglehor and Julian Lescott over DM, DMs, and then try and. You know, position himself as a player liaison officer, paid a lot of money to speak to players when all he can do is actually insult them, insult fans, and insult those who are losing who are losing their jobs. Yeah, which is you know pretty disgusting because all he can do is just slide into people's DMs and criticise them, and you know go beyond that trust, screenshot them, and post them to fans, which is you know beyond <laughs> the beyond that. He's already re- <laughs> so we're thinking about put this aside. Let's go for a second. We've got a Corian Clark. Westwood um, we can hope that Jordan Amavi's injury means that we keep him um, presumably this season we need to think that Jack Grealish you know needs to buckle down redeem himself um, who else who else is the core of the Villa side next season Rudy Gestad I think will be quite a big yeah. part 
given that his championship he, scoring record. And if we can get crosses out, he's the man. Yeah, I used to joke about Rudy. I used to think he was an absolute waste of a player. He's a top bloke. He seems to have... Yeah, he's a top bloke. Absolute cracking for what he's done. If you've not heard, he's been feeding homeless people from his own pocket for the last two or three weeks. You know, outstanding. That is uh, when you know Villa's homeborn players. You know, the people who understand the city don't seem to be showing their faces. People like Abang Law and Lescott really just dead. Who can't really speak much English. Well, he's <laughs> speaking to homeless people outside St Martin's Church and uh, feeding them paying food for him and uh, he seems aside from that he seems to have kicked on a bit as a, of a player because he knows those chances aren't coming to his head so he seems to be always given the smart layoff there just seems to be no one intelligent enough to follow up on it so I do hope that Rudy can kick on next season I know he's been a, a bit of a target for you Adam uh, this season just because of his inability to do anything with his feet <laughs> at all yeah um, um, and that includes scoring goals again you know we just didn't have it. We didn't have any wide players this season. We didn't have anyone putting in the crosses. You know, Jordan Amavi, you know, that game against Liverpool, you know, Jordan Amavi and Hutton put two yeah. crosses on his, on his head. He scored two goals. You know, if we've got wide players who exactly. put the crosses on his head, I'm sure he'll score goals again. And it's, it's a horrible thing that we, we always criticise Rudy because he whiffs some balls when they go out of his feet in complete scoring positions. But he was never that type of player, and uh, that's something we, we all knew coming in. So he's just been put, he's just wrong player in the wrong place, unfortunately. He's just a symptom of uh, what Aston Villa have become. And if we can deliver good quality balls into the box, he'll score them because he does. Every, you know, the, the two good balls we've seen put in this year. He's been Sometimes on the end of them. Who are sitting on the bench and scored a goal. Palace Hill. Ugh, I'm kind of on the fence about Hill. Um, a because he doesn't seem to do anything. B, B. I think he's a fantastic player. I think you know the spirit he showed against the Baggies when he was getting his legs kicked in, you know, brutally kicked in to the point where the camera is closing up on his heels to show ripped stock, socks and a bit of blood uh, similar to Eden Hazard but uh, he doesn't see he doesn't he just seems to meander hmm. I think he'd struggle in the championship because he struggled with the physicality of the premiership and I feel like the championship might be a bit more physical plus there's more games a season so it'll take longer to recover from like bangs and scraps so I feel maybe, I mean, he's a great player, like you said, but do we just cut our losses and send him back to Spain if we can? I mean, I do get worried about the physicality, but equally, you know, dumb physicality, well, a smart player can beat dumb physicality. You know, it could be that, you know, if he could start drifting past players, really using the dribbling skills that we know he's got. Um, I think also he needs a manager, a manager who appreciates what he can do. Um and you can play him in the start side, but you know I feel he'll probably agitate for a move back to Spain. Yeah, um, I mean it's it's no fault of his own that he can't make chances because Villa just don't seem to know uh, between the players how to score a goal. But um, I do get what Tim Sherwood was saying. It doesn't seem like PR talk now when he was saying about you know champagne players. Um, Carlos Hill does not seem to be able to be a player who can inspire Villa to victory. And why, you know, why would you play him over someone like a Jack Grealish or a Jordan Ayew, who seems to absolutely, you know, every time they're on a pitch, try and make something? Um, obviously, they're not similar positions, but 
I you know I can't see for the life of me. You know I agree with Tim Sheld what you know when he was missing at the end of last end of last season, and he did say there's no room for these champagne players. I'm not saying Carlos Hill isn't capable of playing football, but you know he was right about that. Carlos Hill just seems to be capable of, of uh, meandering around without set directions. Um, he doesn't seem to do much, and you know when you look at even people like a, a Westwood or a Bakuna who you know seem to actually have a role. Carlos Hill's role has always been completely oh, surely, unclear. Surely, surely not Bakuna. Oh yeah. Well, when I say that, I don't. I'm. I'm not saying. Oh, he's a better <laughs> player. Or you know, we know his role. We know. We all. We've always known his role. Whether it was a, was a right. You know, despite the various positions he's played in. When it was Carlos Hill, it was always. Are you playing behind the striker today, Carlos? Or are you going to play on the wing today, Carlos? Or are you going to do this, Carlos? And he never seemed to be. You know, True 10 enough. out of 10 I, in a year of those positions. A failure of, manager, of the manager of the player. But, uh... Yeah, it, it, it wouldn't be a complete criticism of him, but Villa don't seem to have used him very well at all under, you know, how many managers we've so, had um, this season. Is it too late in the podcast for a controversial statement? Never too late. Go on, go ahead. I would rather have Leandro Bakuna in my starting eleven than Carlos Heel without a shadow of a doubt. <laughs> I just... I, <laughs> I rate Bakuna quite a lot. I don't know why. I still Explain do. Not on set pieces. Where you rate Bakuna? No. Where, where would Leandro Bakuna play? <laughs> uh, right wing, I guess. I mean, he's not as offensive. And he's played in defence enough that he could get back and cover whoever's at right back better than he would do on the wing. And he's versatile. So if you had to keep him in the squad, he could cover a midfield if he had injuries. And I just think he's a decent player and doesn't deserve some of the stick he's gotten, quite frankly. I feel he's, Drops he's Mike. versatile in the sense that he's equally crap wherever you put him. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I wouldn't put him on the left ever again. I mean, like, Him on the left is not good, but I, I quite like him on the right. Given the fairness, I will say, you know, OK, there was a season where he put six assists into Bendeke, uh, you know, and that season, you know, I think he was our top assist, uh, you know, player with the top assists, and that's one many of our players this season have managed. On the other hand, if that's the case, why is he never linked up with just dead? You know, this, uh, I think it just says a lot more about Bendeke. Has he had much of a chance to? Because he's always been a right back this season the most part uh, I think even when he was delivering to to Benteke he was pretty much playing in a deep right back slot he just seems to I don't know he just seems to have lost somehow the ability yeah. to whip in a right uh, a ball and that's why I'm inclined to think it was more Benteke yeah the position the biggest criticism of Leandro Bakuna I can find is that his best performance this season seems to have been in a Newcastle match when he was playing in a position he had never played before and hardly touched Which the ball in the defensive area. You know, centre back. To be completely honest, <laughs> he was a uh, a, <laughs> a right centre back, and he barely touched the ball and didn't do anything, and he was serviceable. And uh, I think that's a lot more, uh, you know, something I can agree with rather than the Bakuna who's kicked the ball into the first man on the corner or across. And absolutely, we're probably quite late chance. in the podcast, but a quick yay or nay on some other players, Carlos Sanchez, yay or nay in the championship. Uh, I don't know. Yay, he's a I'd body. Really, he I'd go around. yay, because, yeah, but as Ellis said, he's a body and he's strong. But he just seems to look absolutely hmm. lost. Scott Sinclair? Um, yay, I'd go for yay. I, know. 
I would say yay until Newcastle, and he just really frustrated me. So he can just go back to wherever he came from, quite frankly. Um, Ali Sissoko? Swans. Nah. Uh, He's just... He, when I say Carlos Sanchez looks lost, Ali Sissoko's facial expressions actually tell me he, he's just lost. He just... He's been chucked in a hard situation, you know, a pressure cooker, and he's just melted. He tries, but um, Joe Bennett's probably the tries. better option. So, nah. And the man yeah. who could be at Leicester, Jordan Veratou. Oh, it's a hard one because he's he's a he's got the basics for a good player. You know, he makes intelligent runs, is able to dictate attacks, but I just don't think there's a future for him at Aston Villa. I'd love to keep him, but. He's he's just not a good fit. He just doesn't seem like a good fit for the for us. I mean, if no one comes in for him, it's worse people to keep around. So, of course, yeah. There's potential there still, so I wouldn't write him off just yet. Uh, I'd say. Yeah, I mean, uh, as a quick, just going back to some of those for me, Veratu definitely uh, for me as a keep. Um, Sinclair, I think probably at this point, probably done all he can. Um, Sanchez. No, probably get rid of Sanchez. Kind of player who perhaps keeps does alright in the championship, but then as soon as we get to the Premier League, you know, assuming we want to build a kind of side that might survive in the Premier League, he'll just cost us again. Yeah. Completely agree. Um Alan Hutton is a very dividing figure, a very, very fifty fifty split on Alan Hutton throughout the Villa fan base. He's a source of uh, much amusement to every single other football <laughs> fan in the world. But Villa fans uh, seem to really, really enjoy him, and to be honest, I can't blame them. He, you know, he he's not the biggest villain in all of this, but he doesn't seem like someone who can play right back or you know a serviceable defensive position. He's more of an attacking figure. <laughs> you say that, but his attacking output attack. is just awful. Like every time he. Mm-hmm. Every time he cuts left, I despair because he's just going to ping it back right because he can't do anything on his left. Yeah, there's. But if we can get if we can get a better right back, then he's a perfectly good person to keep around. There's nothing fifty-fifty in me about Alan. Sound. He can't attack. And he can't. <laughs> there's no no better uh, statement than that. Alan Hutton, you're not good enough, pal. That's- but yeah, for me, James Rushton, Adam Clark at Adam Clark is on Twitter and Ellis Sanford at it's underscore Ellis. Got it right this time. I hope. Pray tell. But yeah, uh, this has been the fourth episode of On The Pod, episode four, a review of Aston Villa's season. Uh, you can catch us all at 7500 Holt on Twitter and there will be a link to our site where you'll see Ellis and Adams and others excellent writing. So we'll be back soon, hopefully, with maybe something on the Euros. We don't know, but we'll uh, certainly uh, knock our heads together and think something up to speak about. But yeah, in the meantime, we'll catch you later. Thanks for listening.